Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. I am Dr. Michael Karuchak, MD, here as your host today on the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Thank you very much for joining us. As you know, if you are a regular listener, we alternate every week with the inimitable Dr. Hal Schertz. And together, supported by our sponsor, the Doctor Patient Care Foundation, we bring you the very best in healthcare policy chat radio. What makes us different? I mean, we've been here over four years. We're happy to be here in our fifth year. Uh, and over that time, there's been lots of copycats that have emerged, other shows, other podcasts that uh, profess to address the same range of topics that uh, we do. So what makes us different besides having been here first? Well, the Docs for Patient Care Foundation is the only healthcare policy think tank staffed almost exclusively by full-time practicing physicians. That means when we're not here in front of the microphone or we're not researching a topic on the late hours of the night or the weekend or we are not uh, talking to folks in Washington that we know from the White House to Congress and all the way around, that we are taking care of patients all day, every day. Yesterday I saw 27. Today, after I finish this show, I'm going to the office. I will see another 27 patients in the office. So we have the entire spectrum covered. We have folks in Washington that we talk to that keep us informed. We study on our own, and we take that book knowledge, that theoretical knowledge, and we apply it every day when we see our patients. And that gives us the ability to bring you wisdom, understanding, and insight that you are not going to find everywhere else. And in today's show, with the stuff we're talking about, because CMS has been very busy, um, Congress has been very busy with rules, regulations, and legislation that directly affects doctors and patients in some very profound ways. And and so we're going to give you some insights on that, that, that unless you spend time all day, every day, taking care of patients, having to code and bill for those visits, having to manage the finances of a practice as well as make sure your patients are well. Um, you're not going to understand that unless you do all that, and that's what we do, and that's what we intend to bring to you. So thanks very much for your time. We intend to make this uh, upcoming hour worthwhile. So let's get started because the segments are short, 13 minutes, and we have a lot of ground to cover. So the first thing we're going to get into is um, all of the rapidly moving chess pieces uh, that are happening in uh, in Congress and at CMS and, and in the White House that that are, are changing the landscape, or at least propose to change the landscape significantly with regard to healthcare and direct primary care, which, as you know, if you listen, is one of our major. Uh, talking points, perhaps the major talking point that uh, has emerged uh, over the four years that uh, we have been a foundation and, and the four years that we have been doing the uh, Doctors Lounge radio show. So let's talk about uh, uh, Congress first. And we talked about this last week uh, when we interviewed our, our president, Dr. Lee Gross, who continues to be busier than than I can possibly imagine making all of this stuff work. Um, and uh, we're going to replay in the latter half of the show the interview that we had with Lee because uh, it is such an important thing for you to listen to and know and understand. If you've heard it once, it's worth hearing again uh, because of the sheer density of information. And if you haven't heard it before, but please, you've got to listen to the entire hour, even in pieces if you have to, uh, and understand the stuff that Lee had to say. But we're going to present sort of the sequel to, to Lee's interview first. Um, the, the, the direct primary care legislation we're talking about is that legislation which allows uh, individuals to use their health savings account money, pre-tax money, to pay their annual 
direct primary care fee. Remember, direct primary care, very briefly, if you haven't heard already, uh, sort of gets around insurance almost completely for um, for your care and does get around it completely for routine care. You pay your primary doctor a regular monthly fee for essentially unlimited access and access to a range of services, which includes, of course, doctor visits, but it's also going to include potentially, but not always, routine labs, you get a sprained ankle and you need a splint, you get a cut and you need sutures, uh, you know, those sorts of basic primary care things. That range of services is available for a flat monthly fee, which is far less expensive than your insurance. And then wrapped around that is uh, cash fees for things like CAT scans and more exotic labs. And then wrapped around that is a catastrophic insurance policy that covers the God forbid events such as cancer and car accidents and that sort of thing. And that sort of uh, scheme to cover healthcare is far less expensive than traditional insurance, which as you know, um, most recently under Obamacare has had skyrocketing prices actually for decades, not just with Obamacare. Obamacare was just the latest chapter in, in that long book. Um, but direct primary care reverses all that, makes healthcare far cheaper, and this legislation allows you to use pre-tax dollars in your healthcare savings account to pay the monthly fee for direct primary care. So last week, when we talked to Dr. Gross, and you'll hear this again later in the hour, this was this bill got out of committee. Um, it had some significant issues. Uh, the two biggest ones being a cap on how much the monthly fee can be, and even worse. Uh, strict limits on what a direct primary care physician can provide for that monthly fee. And that limit was limited to what we call E&M services or evaluation and management services. That means your doctor could see you under a monthly fee but couldn't do anything else. If you need labs, you couldn't do it. If you needed your ankle wrapped because you sprained it in an inflatable splint put on it, they couldn't do that. Uh, and so there was, you know, stitch up a cut on your arm, couldn't do that. Uh, and so that really hampered the ability uh, of your direct primary care physician to be a little more than a consultant. You could talk a lot, but you couldn't do anything. Well, happily, happily that provision has been removed. So the limitations based only on evaluation and management codes. So now under this bill, you can pay with your HSA pre-tax money and your direct primary care physician is freer to provide you with stitches for a cut, splints for a, a twisted ankle, whatever. Uh, and that's a huge win. That is a huge win, and, and Dr. Gross was a huge part of the effort to make that happen. So that's a very good thing. Um, there are still uh, monetary caps, 150 a month for an individual and $300 a month for a family, which is a pretty high cap. I don't think anybody's going to bump up against that number, but the idea of setting caps on cost arbitrarily is a very slippery slope and still a problem. Uh, but I am also happy to report that the bill passed the House. 277 to 142 last week. I presume that's probably along party lines, although I haven't researched that. That's a pretty educated and probably pretty accurate guess. So part one of the moving chess pieces is that the direct primary care bill that allows us to use HSA pre-tax funds to pay for direct primary care has passed the House. And that, I think, is generally a good thing, although if you survey the DPC community overall, um, feelings are still a bit mixed. Uh, Congress has still uh, demonstrated its ability to screw up a one-car funeral here and keep some limitations on direct primary care paid for by an HSA that, that caused some problems. And some of those problems have to do with conflicts between this federal proposed law and state laws, which I think in about almost half of states now, to allow direct primary care, there is some conflicting language uh, that is that is still, uh, you know, threatens to create a problem. 
So part one of the moving chess pieces, the DPC bill is moving along, has passed the House, goes on to the Senate, where hopefully they can correct some of these fixes. Uh, we also know direct primary care will clearly be on the radar of the White House because of this, uh, as well as the tireless work uh, by Dr. Lee Gross and others. So that's part one. Part two uh, is something that you may have heard on the news uh, that uh, doesn't make a lot of it, it doesn't you don't notice it very much unless you understand the context and it has to do with this archaic sounding thing called a short term limited duration insurance policy and uh, this is something that uh, Obamacare sort of allowed but had a lot of restrictions on and the Trump administration has issued a lot of uh, executive orders to expand this and and this will really help consumers it will especially be helpful with direct primary care. Because remember, uh, as I said a few minutes ago, to have full health coverage under direct primary care, you need, number one, your DPC doctor and a monthly fee. Number two, um, your DPC doctor has uh, already negotiated highly discounted cash prices for more exotic, unusual services, such as you need a CAT scan of your sinuses or your abdomen, let's say, that that cash price has been pre-negotiated. So that's kind of the, the first layer around the core DPC. And then the second layer is this catastrophic-only policy to cover the God-forbid events like car accidents and cancer and that kind of thing. And uh, that's where these short-term limited-duration insurance policies come in because those are ideal uh, to, to purchase a, a, a catastrophic policy. So you are now covered at all levels of care from the routine to the somewhat unusual to the highly unusual and potentially devastating. There is now a plan for any of those um, situations. And the Trump administration has recently expanded um, the, the, the scope of short-term limited duration insurance so that you can renew it um, up to three years, which is quite a long time, and, and things will change after three years. So, so three years is, is a reasonable number to work with. So um, those are the, the, the major legislative and regulatory chess pieces that are moving around in the short term. Um, in addition, um, we've got some things that CMS is doing um, in the, the proposals for 2019, and uh, and some of these proposals are, are pretty radical. They're they're pretty impressive. Um, I've got to say, probably the biggest one are the proposed coding changes for physicians. Uh, proposed for 2019. Now, before I explain what the changes are, you sort of have to understand where things are currently. And if you're a doc, you understand this already, uh, so bear with me. If you're not a physician, you need the walkthrough here so that you understand the significance of what CMS is proposing for Medicare. So when your physician sees you as a patient in the office, um, they bill insurance for that visit, of course. Um, that billing is expressed as a code. It's called a CPT code. And uh, it's a it, for for doctor visits, just the visit, not any other service. Um, there's basically two types of uh, coding schemes. There is the scheme for if you're a brand new patient to that physician or that practice, uh, and within that scheme, there's level one through five. So level one is a super easy visit. You know, you had a you know you had wax in your ears or something really easy, or you had a you know scrape or something, uh, and then. Those move on up to highly complex things. You know, you're a hypertensive diabetic with heart disease and a new diagnosis of cancer. That would be a level five. So level one is really easy, two, three, four in the middle, and level five. 
<clears throat> and they have those one to five scales for new patients and established patients. And as you might guess, payment for the established patients is less than pay- payment for the new patients because you know the new patient already. You don't have to start a database from scratch. The staff doesn't have to work as hard to get them in the system. And so understandably, new or follow-up patients pay less than new patients. Now, under the current scheme, and I have to look these numbers up. I wrote them down, so pardon the paper rattling here. Um, there is a range of services that uh, that run, again, from one to five with escalating uh, amounts of uh, of amounts. So, for example, for a new patient, the, the current values range from $45 for an easy level one visit up to $211 for a highly complicated visit. So we've already reached the end of the segment. We'll pick it up in segment two. Uh, you're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak, your host this week. Thanks very much for being with us on the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. So picking right back up where we left off. Uh, we were talking about, and we had just, we had already talked about the major things going on in Congress with the direct primary care bill and the ability to use uh, pre-tax health savings accounts money to pay your monthly fee for direct primary care. That's huge, but as we talked about, the bill's got some problems still. It's passed the House. Hopefully the Senate can fix it, and if the Senate can't fix it, hopefully Trump signs it if it's okay, and then we get some executive orders or some clarifications either from the White House or CMS to bring us something we've wanted for a long time, which is the ability to use pre-tax money to pay your health care expenses through direct primary care. So that's a big deal. Coupled with that, we talked about uh, executive orders from the White House uh, expanding the use of uh, short-term limited-duration uh, insurance plans that provide an excellent route to get catastrophic-only coverage outside of the minimum essential benefits provision of the Affordable Care Act. And we may not have emphasized that enough in the last segment, so let me go over that again. Uh, we're talking about the, the short-term uh, limited duration insurance uh, that uh, is inexpensive and allows you to uh, uh, go around the requirements, circumvent the requirements in the Affordable Care Act for minimum essential coverage. Because remember, that was one of the main problems with the Affordable Care Act was two things. One is it forced you to purchase insurance, and that's since been repealed, was in the tax cut bill. The second was it defined exactly what that insurance had to be. So there was no purchasing minimal coverage. This was, you know, maximal essential benefits, basically, which did things like make folks in their 60s and 70s pay for 
you know, birth control and, and child care services and that kind of thing. So now you can trim all that out and do a short-term limited-duration insurance that um, that allows you to get around the minimum essential benefits. So that's huge. And in the direct primary care paradigm, allows you to purchase a wraparound catastrophic policy um, for a lot less money than than a Obamacare compliant policy would be. So those two things are huge. We talked about them in the last segment. We're moving on to what uh, the CMS is doing for Medicare and the proposals for changes in. Medicare payments for 2019. So the big one that we started to talk about was this whole idea of radically changing how your doctor is paid to see you in the office. Just that basic, you get together, you have an interview, you do a physical examination, you come up with a diagnosis and a proposed treatment, right? They call that evaluation and management. And there is a coding system for billing Medicare as well as all other forms of insurance for that kind of evaluation and management, the, the doctor visit, no other services to go with that. And so there's, there's basically two types of codes. There's the new patient codes and the established patient codes. And under each of those schemes, there's a one to five spectrum from a level one visit being a super easy, super quick couple of minute visit that pays very little up through two, three, four and a level five visit that's extremely complex and may take 30 to 45 minutes to get through everything, uh, perhaps even longer if you bill for time only. Um, and, and under the existing scheme, we talked, we were just getting into before we got to the break, what, uh, what those, how those break down. So a, a new patient with a super simple level one problem, you only get paid $45. Currently up through a super complicated patient that you bill at a level five that you get $211. Um, established patients, it's a slightly lower range, runs from $22 for level one up to $148 for level five because you don't get paid as much for a patient that you already know. And that makes sense, actually, believe it or not. What Medicare is proposing what CMS is proposing is that you take level two through level five and bundle it into one number. So think about that for a minute. That's a radical change. So now instead of five levels of payment, there are only two levels of payment. There's level one, which is super easy, and then there's two through five that all get bundled up into roughly the same number. And that number, interestingly, sits as the exact, almost the exact arithmetic average between the level three payment and the level four payment. So basically they're saying that anything between level two and level five, you're going to get paid at roughly a level three and a half, if that makes any sense. Now, why would they do such a thing? Why would they peg that average there? Well, this is where, you know, having a, a full-time group, a group of full-time practicing physicians evaluate this information and let you know what it really means to your physician and what it means to you the patient. Um, they, they took the average between level three and level four. Why they do that? Well, because if you look at Medicare's data, it turns out that most doctors bill about 50% level three and 50% level four and just a tiny sliver of level two and level five and basically don't use level one at all, which is probably why level one is split off from this merger and stays by itself. It also explains why the, 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 the bundled, you know, sort of average payment for level two, level five, all being consolidated into one number is the average between level three and level four, because that's kind of the weighted average of how doctors are billing anyway. So if you bill 50% level three and 50% level four, 
then, you know, your total payment for the next 100 Medicare patients that walks in the door should be theoretically, statistically unchanged. So I think the goal was to leave the, the aggregate amount of money that a physician got paid for a large group of Medicare patients to be unchanged. And the idea, the idea here at least was to reduce the documentation requirements so that you could basically see all of your Medicare patients and have a minimum level of documentation required being only level two. And part of this scheme also included uh, some other sort of fuzzy rhetoric talking about uh, that you only have to review changes in the database as opposed to reviewing the entire database and, and because we do have that problem now, right, thanks to electronic medical records and meaningful use requirements working together, you know, we now have a situation where, you know, every patient gets documented at a level five because you click all of your normal buttons. And, uh, and so we have, you know, terabytes and terabytes of useless, um, you know, templated normal physical findings and review of systems and things that, that just clog up the medical records. So I guess it's a reasonable, good faith approach to try and get rid of that. But what's the effect in the trenches? What's the effect uh, on doctors and patients working? Well, it depends upon how you bill as a physician. Um, if, if you bill more level three than level four currently, you'll win under this scheme. If you're a, a heavy level four, level five biller, you're going to lose money under this scheme, and that's probably what they want. The problem here is it's going to make, uh, since level two bills it pays the same as the level five, everyone's going to get treated like a level two. And I think that's a problem. I think what's going to happen here is you're going to see doctors put more appointment slots in their day and see patients more quickly because now you can you can treat everybody like a level two and bill them like they're a level five. But we'll see. I mean, that's all highly speculative. I think I understand what CMS is trying to do here. Uh, I think I understand why they came up with the numbers that they came up with because it has to do with the proportions of how doctors bill level three versus level four. And, um, you know, once again, it points out how exceedingly complicated the E&M billing scheme is and makes direct primary care look that much better, right? Why is it that we have to have a third party overseeing the doctor-patient relationship and having to force itself into the relationship after the fact, after the care is delivered? We now have yet another overly complicated effort by CMS to measure value and measure payment when it makes a whole lot more sense to let the patient do those things, right? It makes far more sense to have a direct primary care arrangement where the patient pays a certain amount per month for essentially unlimited access, and the patient can decide how much that doctor's worth and if the price is appropriate or it's too high uh, and has the chance to vote with their pocketbook. Uh, it's a far better way, just like the rest of the free market operates, to align everyone's incentives, uh, keep everybody on the same page. Um, you know, this again, this this whole thing still. You know, I, I guess I applaud them for trying to do something. And you know, Seema Verma and Azar, you know, they've been there long enough to dig their heels in and try to make some uh, intelligent changes. Uh, I can't fault them for that, but boy, you look at the whole thing and say this is still lipstick on a pig. Let's just get rid of that whole system and let everybody go to direct primary care for at least their primary care services. Specialty care can be 
cash up front, which puts downward pressure on those prices. Um, and uh, it just the more they the, the the fancier the plumbing, the easier it is to stop up the drain, I suppose. Now, in the last three minutes that we have here in segment two, uh, I'm going to talk about some other things that Medicare is doing, which are I almost have to say I like them, right? I just finished sort of damning with faint praise this these proposals to the E&M coding and payments, but but let's talk about another one here that's really really big, and this has to do with something you may not even understand exists in the first place, um, and it has to do with the fact that Medicare pays different prices for the same service based on where that service is performed. I mean, think about that for a minute. What if what if you had two car dealers on either side of the street selling the same car, and on one side of the street the car was $20,000, and on the other side of the street the car was $45,000? Well, what would happen? We think the obvious thing is that everyone would go to the side of the street where the car is cheaper, and that may be true, but the other thing that happens is this: the car manufacturer is going to put all of their dealers on the expensive side of the street. And that's exactly what happens in Medicare because of facility-based payments. That means for the very same service, whether it's a doctor visit, a lab, or a CAT scan, or radiology or imaging, Medicare pays way more for that visit if it's in a hospital facility than if it's in a freestanding facility. What a horrible, horrible concept. Um, The cool thing here is that they're changing that slowly but this year 2019 may have some radical changes uh, you know again this is a terrible concept to start with this site specific payment and it's it's been the driving force behind a lot of the acquisition by hospitals of facilities because now you can move that facility from an independent category into the hospital category and so the same bricks and mortar can suddenly charge three times as much to medicare and get that money just because of who owns it now, there are some nuances to that, and the law is far more complicated. I'm admittedly oversimplifying things a little bit. But what Medicare is now proposing for clinic visits, at least to start, for clinic visits to pay the same amount of money, right? Right now, for your average clinic visit, if you if you get that visit in a doctor's office, the average payment is $46. Um, in, in a hospital facility, it's $116, like two and a half times as much. Well, now the proposal is to bring that number down to the same $46 regardless of where you get that. So now this is huge. And as you can imagine, you know, the American Hospital Association and some similar associations have come out violently against this, vehemently against this, uh, saying that it's going to cut off access for the sickest patients. It's going to do a lot of bad things. Uh, and, you know, again, it's it's they're they're protecting their own pockets, but it's huge. Um, we are at the end of the uh, segment. You're listening to the Doctors Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Karuchak, your host this week. Thanks for being with us. We are talking with uh, our fearless, peerless leader, Dr. Lee Gross. Uh, we're doing a little bit of odd editing here to make it uh, fit the segments, but I am going to bring um, the uh, the interview with uh, Lee back on right now and pick it up where we left off. A convoluted HSA fix, uh, which barely fixed one problem, but then in, it subsequently created about 10 to 12 other additional problems that were actually almost worse than the original problem that it solved. Uh, and we can get into to some of the details. So... Uh, you know, you know, sort of in a in a you know frantic fury to find out more information, we we called uh, Senator Pol- uh, uh, I'm sorry, we called the uh, the Ways and Means Committee and, and try to talk with them about this bill to find out. Basically, it was you know, pre negotiated. The the votes were already counted, and this was going to pass, and it's expected to leave the House uh, as is. Uh, and so we went from a, a simple, clean bill to a bill that was convoluted and quite frankly dangerous uh, in the bat of an eye. So last Wednesday, it did, in fact, pass the House. And so, uh, uh, it, it, House, You uh, mean we, out of the committee or it passed the House? Yes, uh, it passed out of the House Ways and Means Committee. Uh, okay. And as, as part of uh, a, a broad HSA overhaul, it's, it's likely uh, going to be brought to the floor of the House uh, maybe next week before the August recess. So, you know, this, is, this puts supporters of direct primary care in a very difficult position and gives us a very uh, difficult sort of communications, public relations messaging challenge because now we find ourselves being forced to oppose a bill which superficially on the surface to those who don't delve deep should be something we support. So how do we explain to the whole world why we oppose a bill which appears to do what we've always wanted? Right. So some of it is buried deep within the technical structure of the bill. And so if you just read the bill superficially, you you might think, actually, this doesn't sound so bad. Uh, And, of course, if you've ever read any legislative language, you can see lots of codes and numbers and and regulations that the the bill references. And, And most people usually just skim over those. Uh, but to understand what the bill really does, you actually have to track um, all those reference codes to find out what exactly they, they mean by these things. And so a couple things, first of all, stand out is that they wanted to, they, they offered a very narrow definition of what direct primary care could be. Uh, and using those, they basically tied uh, DPC to CPT coding. Uh, and if you're not familiar with CPT coding, it's the AMA uh, licensed codes that they use to do all the billing for personal insurance. It's the, one of the main reasons why DPC practices broke away and, and stopped doing billing is because the coding was so complex. So it, it tied the DPC practices to, to medical codes. Um, 
and it restricted it to, uh, specifically to your contracts only including office-based services um, and excluded anything that wasn't in there. So, for example, I could see you for your sore throat. That could be included in my DPC membership, but if I did a strep throat test, that couldn't be. That had to be excluded because that was not just an office visit. That became a procedure or a test. Uh, I, it would exclude the ability of including women's wellness exams, including PAP tests. Uh, it would exclude doing urinalysis, blood glucose, spirometry, splinting, uh, sutures, all the stuff that, that most practices bundle into their membership agreements by this legislation would have to exclude out of their practices and line item them uh, and bill individually separately, uh, which means that these practices that have left the coding world now have to implement a, a, a system where they tr whereby track these codes either real-time or retroactively uh, to avoid you know, future audits um, or not be eligible to use the HSAs within their practice. Taking that even uh, a step further in the problems in the bill is it, it used the wrong IRS code to fix the bill uh, or to fix the HSA problem. So instead of uh, designating DPC as a qualifying medical expense to use HSA, it used the wrong code and it designated DPC as a qualifying health plan, um, which uh, you can still use your HSA under this bill, but it now sets up a conflict with the 25 states that have passed laws that said that DPC is not a health plan. Um, so the IRS says it's a health plan, the, the, the states say it's not a health plan. So you now have established new conflict between federal and state law. It, and historically, DPC practices have been able to uh, have their patients reimbursed for their memberships from flexible spending accounts or health reimbursement accounts through employers. Um, but now that you've designated this a health plan, it would disqualify them from using HSAs and HRA or FSAs, flexible spending accounts and health reimbursement accounts to pay for this. So it fixes the HSA problems, creates two more problems, creates conflicts with states and federal law. Uh, it then goes on to do carve-outs for things that, that can't be done in the practice really at all. Uh, and they do a carve-out for prescription drugs. Now, if you know, you know, most of the independent DPC practices, which account for about 95% of the drug primary care in the country right now, and the independent practices, they do wholesale pharmacies in-house. So, you know, by this vague carve-out of prescription medications, it, it, it muddies the water on whether or not people can actually use their DPC practice to purchase medications, whether their HSA would, would be eligible for that, um, or whether they would be forced to get their prescriptions outside into commercial pharmacy. Uh, so this this bill is absolutely uh, geared towards the, the commercial drug primary care large corporate interests that really don't do a lot of these bundled services that 95% of the DPC practices out in the regular world do. So it is, you know, on the surface sounds it sounds good, but when you dive down into it, it's really a, a critically flawed bill. So the other problem I guess it sets up is, is what it forces every DPC practice to do, which is either to keep doing what they're doing and not allow and not accept HSA money or to accept and comply. So I guess it also introduces a bit of fragmentation potentially, does it not? 
Well, and it also creates an unlevel playing field between the, the independent DBC practices and the corporate practices because the corporate practices have the ability to comply where the independent practices don't, which is precisely the sort of problem that drove consolidation in the, in the regular world, where the small practices couldn't keep up with the rules, and so they had to, to be bought up. Uh, and so it puts the small practices in, in, at a competitive disadvantage. It taxes and penalizes the patients that see those smaller practices because they don't get the tax breaks that they're going to get had they gone to, to see a corporate practice that can comply with these new regulations. Well, uh, corporate practice not, can't, can't do any of these things either, right? I mean, does a, does a large mm-hmm. corporate thing, can they somehow get around these requirements of not going beyond E&M somehow or? Well, they can put the, the software in place to track all of the CPT codes and, and line item out every single charge uh, that a DPC practice would have. Oh, okay. You're, just, you're talking about infrastructure and, and, and compliance the same way we do with uh, everything else, not that they oh, can... Mike, I left, I, I left out the best part. Um, oh. They actually put a wage uh, cap on uh, direct primary care. So yes, they capped, indeed. Uh, how much you're allowed to charge for, for membership and how much of that w- would be... Uh, uh, eligible to use an HSA. So for the first time uh, in in, uh, in recent history, you now have a federally uh, legislated cap on what the physician can uh, uh, can charge for their services, uh, which is an entirely slippery slope and almost sets up a another SGR-type situation where every year doctors are going to have to go back and beg from the federal government to you know not have their wages cut when they decide they're going to cut the caps uh, year after year again. So um, there's just little to like in this bill. And so, you know, the, the, the HSA fix is, is, quite frankly, not worth what it's bundled with. And so, you know, it's really, it, you know, this is certainly a bill that, that um, does not appear that, that uh, the House is willing to budge much off the language on this. It's pretty much in stone. Um, I, I don't see many opportunities to really fix this when it goes to the Senate. Um, and quite frankly, uh, uh, this really needs massive, massive overhaul, or it needs to just go away. And, and the sad thing is, is that does set back the HSA solution five to ten years. Uh, and this was a, a, a prime opportunity, and unfortunately it was a prime opportunity squandered by, by poor bill, bill writing, special interests, um, and uh, it, it's a missed opportunity that we're really sad to see, to see go. So is it you, you think when something like this happens cuz I mean you know regular people don't really understand why this happens why if you have one bill that everybody supported and it was recognized as a good thing and then it gets meddled with I mean is this more a product of ignorance forces of evil uh what I think it's you know it's probably a combination of all of the above it was a uh, an improper understanding of what independent direct primary care practices do. Um, it was, it, it was, you know, again, follow the money. If it doesn't make sense, follow the money. Yeah. Corporate interest, special interest lobby lobbies, uh, I think drove a lot of this. Uh, the desire to keep the cost of the legislation down, I think drove much of this. Uh, the attempt to make this a bipartisan approach, uh, when, you know, the Democrats, uh, on this committee hate HSAs to begin with. Yeah, so, you know, I think that, you know, the the Joint Committee on Taxation, which is basically the scoring body of, of the uh, Ways and Means Committee, um, really uh, 
put a very high price tag on on this piece of legislation. Uh, as it is, they they established a price tag of one point eight billion dollars, even with the scaled down version over ten years, uh, which is a figure that is just overly inflated. But um, there really is no negotiating on that. Um, I think uh, you know the, the desire to keep the cost down. I think drove a lot of these these tortured you know explanations and definitions of direct primary care, uh, which sort of you know put some of the very tight uh, and narrow definitions on TPC. You know, again, mainly to keep the, the cost down. Uh, you see the uh, the outside special interests, the corporate direct primary care uh, lobby. I think uh, uh, heavily influenced uh, the the development of this this legislation. Um, and again, I think you know when when all else fails, if, if you know if this doesn't make sense, you know who does well off of a legislation like this when when most of the DPC out there does not. Um, again, it's a it's a few small uh, special interest groups. So to understand that, you, you probably need to understand you know what is the difference between the, the type of DPC. You know, ninety five percent of the direct primary care practices out there are small one discrete. Uh, physician practices um, that that uh, you know contract directly with their patients. Uh, about five percent of the direct primary care are uh, large companies that contract through brokers. Uh, with contracting. Okay, that's about as much time we have here at the end of the segment. Uh, you're listening to the Doctors Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we do Internet of Things and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, carefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchek with you this week with special guest Dr. Lee Gross, our president of Docs for Patient Care Foundation. Uh, last segment, he was telling us about all the neat stuff that is going on uh, with some improving regulations uh, with regards to association health plans and some of the stuff that we're looking forward to coming down the pike. Uh, this segment, uh, Lee's going to talk about some of the other things he's doing in Washington and some of the other issues that uh, that, that he feels is important if you are following the direct primary care movement and i'm going to remind you to remind me lee we got to talk about the uh the november meeting uh for direct primary care nuts and bolts so uh have at it 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I probably should just open with that since you, since you said, you know, we've now had, this is our third annual Direct Farmer Care Nuts and Bolts Conference conference that we're holding November 1st to 3rd in Orlando. Uh, and we had our first conference in 2016 in Dallas where we had about 275 uh, physicians from 41 states attend. Uh, in 2017, we had our conference in Orlando where we had nearly 300 physicians from 39 states. Uh, and in the first 24 hours uh, that tickets were available for our next conference in Orlando, uh, we sold uh, 120 tickets in 24 hours. Uh, wow, so I didn't like know we're, that. We're well on our way to uh, another full house uh, in, in Orlando. So uh, make sure you go to the Docs for Patient Care Foundation website and look for the links to uh, to register for that meeting before seats are sold out. Um, so... You know, one of the things that I that I brought up uh, in the last segment is you know the issue around legislation and direct primary care, and you know you had mentioned work in Florida, and so the work with with direct primary care at the states and the legislative issue at the states really is around is direct primary care health insurance, and if a doctor and a patient uh, contract directly with one another for medical care, does the doctor become an insurance company? And all the, those legislative efforts that we had at the states basically said. You know, a doctor is not an insurance company just because they contract with a patient. That legislation or legislation like it has now been passed in 25 states, and I believe there are five states pending um, as we sit here today. The issue at the national level is different. Um, and so what happened in 2014 was, if you remember a, a, an IRS chairman by the name of Koskinen, uh, this was a, a gentleman that was sort of known for targeting conservative groups and was going to be uh, uh, impeached by the, the House panel. Uh, this is a gentleman that was going to support Obamacare and Obamacare exchanges by any way possible. And, and what he did in his tenure was create landmines all around the, the free market health care landscape uh, that really drove people away from free market choices and into the Obamacare marketplace. And it just so happened that one of those landmines was laid directly at the foot of direct primary care. And so in 2014, um, the, uh, the commissioner issued a letter that specifically stated that he believed, in his opinion, direct primary care was a health plan. Um, and, and so what that specifically does is it blocks patients that have health savings accounts from enrolling in a direct primary care practice. Because if you have an HSA, you already have a health plan, and direct primary care would technically, under this opinion, be a second health plan, and you can't have two health plans. So by his, by his uh, opinion piece, what he basically has said is uh, not only can you not use an HSA to pay for DPC, you can't even sign up for DPC and still contribute to an HSA. I did not know that. Now, that is, creates a challenge, especially when a DPC practice is, um, you know, trying to just contract with an individual patient and maybe you know, work for a large employer that has an HSA. You know, that employer, their HR department is guiding the patient to say, hey, if you sign up with that practice, you, you've disqualified your HSA. Um, so, you know, it's interesting because if you look at the legislation that creates HSAs, it's very clear that an HSA payment can be used to pay for physician services. And in a direct primary care practice, 
the membership is the payment for physician services because the practices don't charge anything else. It's just the membership fee. They don't charge fee for service. So it's very clear since you can use an HSA to pay for physician services that you can should be able to use an HSA to pay for DPC. The problem really lies in Koskinen's letter that specifically lays out that DPC is a health plan. Uh, and then again, it, it doesn't matter how you use your HSA dollars. It's the mere fact that you signed up for it creates a challenge. So, so would it be been, would it be theoretically possible then, since Koskinen is no longer commissioner, that the current commissioner could? I mean, can you over can you supersede one letter with another letter, or is it kind of like well, once the opinion's rendered, it can't be changed? And, and that's the exact reason why we've had so many meetings in Washington, and that's why. So we've met with with the White House now on two separate occasions. We've uh, had meetings with Treasury Department. We've had meetings with. Uh, senior officials with Health and Human Services. Uh, and I can tell you that everybody across the board unanimously supports direct primary care and wants to see this this issue resolved. Uh, the question becomes, does it take legislation to overturn a letter? Uh, because legislation didn't create the problem, the letter created the problem. And so to your question is, can you just reverse this? I believe you can. Um, you know, so that in a, in a quarter do, might get you a phone call do, nowadays. Do they believe you can, or or do they waffle on that point and say, "Gee, we'd love to do this, but we're afraid to, or we won't, or we can't, or uh, and what's their opinion?" Obviously, we know what our opinion yeah. is. Yeah, depending on who you ask. I, I mean, I believe that I believe they believe they can, but I also believe that they prefer not to. Um, okay, they would prefer they would prefer Congress to do it. They would, you know, since there is a bipartisan initiative, I think they would like to have Congress have a win on this one and let them pass this legislation. But I don't think they're afraid to do it themselves if they if they need to. Um, and you know, so that was um, that was kind of our challenge. Is you know, and one of the the conversations I had with one of the the people from the White House is, you know, this White House is trying to go back and fix a lot of issues where. Uh, regulation was done by a letter. Uh, and you'll have sort of a rogue uh, representative of an agency, and they'll send a letter to somebody telling them you can't do this or you can't do that and sort of establishing policy based upon just their their opinion or, or a letter. And so we've offered this up as an example to them as regulation by letter. And I believe they they believe that this is a regulation by letter, and it can be overturned just through uh, an administrative action. Uh, again, I think, but that they they really just want to see this uh, this taken up in a in a thoughtful manner by Congress and say, you know, let, let's just go ahead and, and fix it. So, what you know, the main issue is you need it d- determined and declared that direct primary care is not a health plan, uh, and you also need uh, a designation by Congress to declare that uh, health savings accounts uh, can be used to pay for direct primary care. Um, so it's a qualifying medical expense in a direct primary care or in a, in a health savings account. Is so it reasonable? Is it reasonable to try to add Medicare and Medicaid in the same breath, or is that a much bigger apple to bite? It's a big apple to bite. Uh, and so there are some initiatives that are that are going on uh, with CMS, and, and in fact, we met with uh, Deputy Secretary uh, Eric Hargan of HHS. Uh, we've met with. Uh, uh, Dr. Jeet Gurham, who is the senior advisor to Seema Verma, 
and also was overseeing a, a CMMI, and CMMI stands for Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, a pilot program around uh, what they call direct provider contracting. We certainly uh, gave our opinions as to as to their uh, uh, their proposal, but um, safe to say that we, we didn't care for direct provider contracting taking over DPC. Uh, and then putting out an initiative that didn't resemble either direct primary care or DPC or anything like it for that matter. Yeah, I was trying to rack my memory. I, if memory serves, yeah, I remember that, that it was, that their ideas were a bit misguided, if I remember correctly. Yeah, their ideas were misguided. I, I appreciate their support. You know, I think one of the neat things about direct primary care is we are actually, uh, at a point right now where we're setting up local healthcare economies. You know, we're going around, we're putting prices on services, we're establishing value for goods, we're competing on price and quality in certain markets. And so the market is actually just starting to work. And so when Medicare comes in and swings it, swings around, you know, their muscle, uh, it completely can destabilize a very fledgling market. And I think we'll have the exact opposite effect um, as to what what I think their intent is, is to support the marketplace. So I think it restored it. It artificially set the prices um, and really only benefits probably a, a few small uh, number of folks while it, it distorts the entire DPC movement and flips it on its head. So uh, hopefully we can sort of write that and, and get it moved in the right direction. But yeah, getting getting CMS involved is, is always a scary proposition. I think most people would hold direct primary care's exit from CMS is a win. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, and if if memory serves, there have been some failures. I think there was one out on the West Coast where they got a little too wrapped up with the federal programs, if I remember correctly. Yes, yeah, so, exactly. So there was a a program out there called Q Lions that entered into a shared savings uh, arrangement with a Medicaid managed care program uh, and saved the program so much money that it invoked a clawback provision in the state law that took the money back from uh, from the practice because, you know, they didn't spend it in health care, so it must go back and belong to the state. Uh, and that was money that was, that, was, that was promised to the practice for saving so much. That was sort of the beginning of, of the dominoes that began to fall to put Q-Lions out of business. Uh, yeah. So anytime you sort of get into those arrangements, it's always a little bit scary as to, what can happen, but yes, there are definitely some exciting things happening. There are some opportunities uh, opportunities there, but again, we have been meeting with people at the highest of the highest levels in, in the federal government to educate them on what needs to happen in order to, to support this growing marketplace, to support the direct primary care movement, uh, to support uh, physician and patient autonomy. Uh, and so, again, I, I'm encouraged by the reception that we've had at every level. Um, I've not heard a single person push back against anything that we've you know, really had to say in any of our meetings. So uh, I'm, I'm wondering once again about the timetable. So you've gone up there a couple of times. You've put the bugs in everybody's ear. Um, any clue? Again, I'm asking an impossible question as to when they might return the volley and say, well, here's our response, uh, anything? Yeah, I think within the next few months, it might be reasonable to expect that either legislation is either going to move or uh, some action is going to have to happen. And, yeah. you know, I think people will continue to put pressure on them. 
you know, we mentioned this association health plan, and I think you know one of the one of our issues is that just because you give people access to health care or health coverage, you still have not given them affordable care, and you've done nothing to actually bring down the cost of health care. Direct primary care fixes that problem for them, and I think the bundling of direct primary care into that entire program, that entire package with association health plans, short-term medical plans, makes it just work. Yeah, and so I, I know the administration sees that, and I think if we can pull that off, it should happen in the next three to eight months, twelve months. Be sweet. All right, we're at the end of the segment, Lee. You've been listening to the Doctors Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. 
the first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.